Very warm welcome if you have joined us during worship. I want to open up the Bible for us. And I want to look at the book of Exodus. Uh, if, you are, if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 11. We've been looking, and this is very intermittent, but between January and now, I think I've done about five sermons on the book of Exodus. This story of liberation. The people of Israel were under slavery, uh, under this uh, dictator or series of dictators for 400 years, uh, who are essentially willing to do genocide to them, uh, keeping them in slavery, and, and most of all, resisting God's will. God wants to free these people, wants to free his people uh, to experience his liberty and live under his authority. And, and, he, and he goes through a series of plagues, a series of moments of judgment. And each time Pharaoh resists, he says, no, I do not recognize your authority. And each time God visits judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Until we come to this moment, we're looking at the 10th plague the moment of severe judgment where the only thing that is left is that God uh, brings about the death of the firstborn sons of each family in Egypt. And it may sound very harsh to our ears, but it is this moment that brings the liberty to, uh, brings liberty to the people of Israel, brings freedom. This is the, the moment of judgment and the moment of freedom. But what I want to do as we unpack this story is to look at the, the celebration, the ritual that is attached to this moment. Because all of this is about remembering our redemption. The instruction that, that God gives to the people is every year they will remember this moment through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is about the Passover and that moment of remembering what God has done. And that is the, the call of the Christian life. We too live remembering our redemption. So turn to Exodus chapter 11. I just want to talk you through the story. It starts with Moses in verse 11 of chapter 11, sorry, verse 4 of chapter 11, speaking these very, very harsh judgment, giving this very harsh judgment to Pharaoh. It says, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, all the firstborn of cattle and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went from Pharaoh in hot anger. Pharaoh, the great dictator who considers himself like a god, his own people will come to him and demand that the people of Israel leave after such a moment of judgment. But then Moses goes on and, it, it, and gives the, the people an instruction from God which speaks of this Passover ritual which ultimately points to Christ. Carry on in verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall for you shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, 
a male, a year old. You may take it from it, take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat, eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. And then go on, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. A great and elaborate ritual that is in one sense entirely unnecessary. In the earlier plagues, God kills the livestock of the Egyptians, but doesn't touch the livestock of Israel. He doesn't need this ritual to demarcate the people of Israel. Why does this ritual exist except to point us to the great Passover lamb, who is Christ Jesus himself? But he goes on, and this is the bit that's really interesting. He then establishes an annual ritual in the lives of the people of Israel that they remember this moment every year for one week. He says, this shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven, all the yeast, out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person should be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you should hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work should be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And then he goes on and says, you even need to remember this when you enter the promised land. God is liberating them from Egypt. One day they will enter the promised land. He says, I want you to enact this great celebration on that day. Verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you should keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. What I want you to see most of all is that this is a great instruction towards remembrance. This great elaborate ritual. Think about the, the way even the ritual itself would have burned its way into the memories of the, of the Israelites as they remember that moment that they roasted this lamb and put the blood on their doorposts and they heard the cry, the great suffering of the people of Egypt as they saw their, the death of their firstborn sons. They would remember that night, surely, for the rest of their lives. See this un- elaborate ceremony once a year for seven days, which will become the beginning. It's to be on the first month of the year. This celebration, this seven days of eating unleavened bread, of removing the yeast, of um, each day, in Leviticus tells us, of making a sacrifice to God, of um, two days, either at the end, which are kind of days of holy celebrations, really, like a a day of feasting and and, of given away from work that they might Sabbath and rest with God on that day and celebrate. 
This is all about remembering your redemption. This is about God saying, this moment that I liberated you, this moment when I rescued you from slavery and brought you out to be my people under my authority, I want you to remember this. I want this to be the foundational story again and again. And if you read the Old Testament, you see the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's like, this is my calling card. This is the moment I want you to remember. This is, you know, like how different nations of the world have a kind of foundation story, a myth. You know, if you're British, it'd be like, you know, we are the people who haven't been conquered since 1066 and we've repelled various different enemies and we, you know, D-Day and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a story of British, Britain against the world and you could make all sorts of sociological reasons that that's why we did Brexit and all sorts of things. Or if you're American, the, the American, the uh, independence and 4th of July and all that kind of narrative around that of where we where we where they beat the british etc my point is every nation has a kind of foundation story has a kind of mythos that kind of says that defines us and and god says this is what i want to be your defining story and what i want you to see is that this story this is perfect parallels with the redemption that we have in christ this is in a sense we remember this at two levels we remember the redemption this, this story of liberation this is our story we've been grafted into Israel this is God's story rescuing our people our forefathers so to speak in the Lord in Christ but it's also a pointer to the fact that the cross of Christ our redemption story is intended to be the foundation stone of our lives the call to remember your redemption is about Allowing the cross of Christ to loom large over your lives. It's so easy if you think about the redemption that we've received, the, the idea that, you know, you see this, by the way, the redemption here, the, the parallels with Christ, surely. The, the, the blood of the unblemished lamb must be on the doorposts to protect them so that the Lord will pass over them and bring his mercy and will save them from his judgment. This is, the say, this is pointing to the great Passover lamb, Christ himself. It's saying this, the story of redemption is not some remote event over here, which you kind of know intellectually, but really has no bearing on your life. No, the story of redemption of what Christ has done on the cross must loom large over your life, must be burned into your soul, must seep into your life and shape the way you see yourself, shape the way you shape your emotions, shape your desires, shape your actions. It's like redemption must be kind of branded into you. You know, like the way livestock are branded by their fa- the person who owns them and they kind of say, this is, this is my animal, so to speak. The redemption story of Christ must be branded into us and must reshape how we do life. Redeemed people look different. And I want to unpack for you what this story says about our redemption and, and really what it says about how we are to display that redemption in our lives, what redemption means for how we live and who we are. But, but I just want to start, before we do that, I just want to say, why is remembering so important? What you've got to hear, when you talk about remembering our redemption, which I think this is all about, you've got to see this is not just a kind of intellectual remembrance. It's not just, a, not just like knowing something. In, in this, um, later on in chapter 13, he speaks about... Um, and it shall be to you, to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your, between your eyes. He's saying this great redemption must be kind of between your eyes, must be at the forefront of your consciousness. You must remember this. This must be a central part of how you live your life, to, always to be at the forefront of your mind. And see the danger of forgetting 
Think about the story of the people of Israel, how often they forgot who they were, how easily they then bowed down to the idols of the people around them as they forgot this story. How easy it is as we as Christians who live in a, a culture of people who've forgotten God, who ignore him, how easy it is we forget our central identity, forget who we are, forget the living God, because everybody around us has forgotten the living God. So easy it is for us to look just like everybody else. Think about the tragedy of dementia. To forget who you are, think about when someone experiences dementia and they slowly forget who they are, forget their relationships. It's a deep tragedy. That is what it means to forget your redemption, to forget who you are. And so God says, no, I want you to remember who you are. I want to remember your redemption. I think this means five things which will breeze through. The first one, redemption means forgiven. Remember the blood of the unblemished lamb. The central lesson of the Passover is you have received the mercy of God. Christ is the Passover lamb. And redeemed people, almost above everything else, know that they are forgiven. You see, the mercy of God is all the way through this story. They're to take this unblemished lamb and to apply the blood of the lamb to their doorpost. It's a pointer to the person of Christ. You see this all the way through the Old Testament. You see, even back to the story of Abraham and Isaac, as God says to Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. And of course, that sounds almost unthinkable to us. As a man who has a three-year-old son, that's unthinkable. And yet Abraham takes him, but God provides a lamb in his son's place. He's providing the sacrificial lamb in the son's place. Or think about the book of Leviticus and sees all these different um, sacrificial offerings and the great day of atonement where um, the the high priest sacrifices a lamb um, and by the blood of the lamb, the, the sin of the people is atoned for so the presence of God can dwell with his people in the tabernacle. All the way through the Old Testament, we get a pattern building up pointing to that great day when the great Passover lamb will make a substitution with his life so that he will take the judgment that you deserved and take that on himself on the cross so that you receive the mercy of God. Christ is the great Passover lamb and this is all about pointing to that great moment. And what I want you to understand, when I say this is all about forgiveness and this is what people who are redeemed um, display, I I think the great danger is that you say, well, I I know I'm forgiven. In one sense, this, this this is Christianity 101. And yet, this great truth, the idea that you are forgiven, is such a... It runs so anti-ethical to our deepest instincts that I think we will spend a lifetime appropriating this truth. And many of the pastoral challenges that I do when I talk talk with people in their lives actually come back to understanding and appropriating and receiving the truth of forgiveness into their souls. And I think there are two great enemies of this this idea of forgiveness in in the Christian life. One is condemnation. Though I see it time and again, Christians uh, carrying around the weight of their sin, like, you know, like in the olden days when you clap someone in irons, you might clap them to a big iron ball so they couldn't really move and they're kind of, maybe they might be able to drag it very slightly, but it was kind of, they were imprisoned under the weight of this great cannonball, they couldn't move. I see Christians all the time carrying the weight of condemnation, feeling like they are, their, their Christian life is a constant litany of failures. And then feeling weighed down. And sometimes that condemnation can lead to a sense of isolation. You can withdraw from the family of God because you feel a great weight of sin. And you think, how can I ever be among God's people when, I, when my life looks like this or when I've done this? And 
I mean, the great tragedy sometimes of the great persistent battle with sin in Christians' lives is the first enemy that we have to fight is the enemy of discouragement. Before we even deal with the sin, that, that it has to be dealt with. I'm not saying that we just like, tolerate that and say that's fine, but it's that, that actually sometimes the first thing we need to deal with is just that weight of condemnation and discouragement. And, what it, and the way we do that is by appropriating the objective reality of Christ. The sense to which your feelings, your, um, your own perception, when you, it's, in a sense, it's almost natural that you feel a sense of guilt and condemnation. It's almost a, a natural consequence of sin. But you do not allow your feelings to override the objective reality of Christ's death. Does your internal monologue match the reality that your sins have been passed over? Do you see that if you so easily turn in on yourself and, and, and turn to condemnation, that actually the enemy is one. The enemy is one. That's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to accuse you. He wants to lead you in a place of, of, of kind of isolation or so easily a place of kind of really not being used by God because you're, the weight of sin pulls you away from others, pulls you away from desiring to be used by God. The great the way, Satan will use sin in your life to condemn you, to make you want to give up, and to leave you in a kind of pit of, of self-pity and condemnation. And Christ, I, I would want to encourage you, the first thing if you're experiencing a battle with sin is, is actually Christ would want to liberate you from that condemnation, would want, to, want you to know the great mercy of God, and actually the grace of God that enables us to keep on going, that enables us to fight sin, that enables us to say, I am not defeated by the sin, and even if I see sin in my life, I have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and then I can stand in his presence with joy and thanksgiving. So that's one condemnation. The other one is apathy. And this is so common that we actually, the, the idea of God's forgiveness no longer resonates with us because we, it kind of is so familiar to us. We're so used to it. It's, it's, oh, yeah, of course I'm forgiven by God. I mean, that's, that's the gospel. Many of you would have given me that when we, talk, when we do a membership interview at Grace. And, but yet it so easily becomes a little formula that trips off the tongue rather than this great, incredible mercy. Have we forgotten that we are ones who have been saved from judgment? You know, you notice this when he talked about it in verse 27, when he said, And you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Have you forgotten that you are one who has been spared judgment? Have you, have you forgotten that you are one who deserved judgment, but you've been spared? Essentially what I'm saying is, have you lost sight of the fact that the mercy of God is bewildering? It's essentially, we, we, we should come to Christ saying, I can't believe you've forgiven me. I can't believe I've received your mercy. Have you forgotten that you don't, in your own self, deserve his grace and deserve his mercy? Has it kind of just become routine. You think, oh yeah, that's, yeah, I've received his mercy. No, this is something, this is something we, are, we absolutely don't deserve. We don't deserve it, and yet Christ has lavished his mercy upon us. Don't let it grow stale. This is intended to be a liberating source of joy. If this isn't a source of joy in your life, then there is something wrong. Jesus says to those, uh, this group of men who come back and they've been performing great miracles, and, and he says, don't, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
The great grounds of joy in the life of the Christian is not your spiritual accomplishments, not the blessings, the many blessings in your life. The greatest grounds of joy, which cannot be taken away from you because it's not based on you, but based on the work of Christ on the cross, is that your name is written in the book of life. Hallelujah. Your name is written in the book of life. Uh, The picture that has stuck with me all week as I think about this is the bride of Christ who has has exchanged her garments of filthy rags of her own works for the robes of righteousness. And she is dancing with joyful abandon under the adoring gaze of her husband, Christ, her spouse, who loves her who's poured out himself for her, who's committed to her. And she is able just to dance with no no sense of condemnation, no sense of guilt hanging around her neck, like something to drag around. She's liberated. The chains have come off. She's not living for the approval of others. She is living in freedom. That is what grace brings. And it should feel like that, brothers and sisters. So we need to work the grace of of God into our souls. Because as I said, this this doesn't come naturally to us. It's the, the very last thing you'd expect when you do wrong, you want to do wrong to the people who've done wrong to you. When there's something done wrong, you know there should be justice. And yet the mercy of God is, says, no, the justice has been done. And so we need to work this into our souls. That's why we take communion every week. We celebrate the grace of God. It's like God doesn't want you to go a week without knowing his grace. Actually, no, it's not just a week. Every day, his mercies on you every morning. So don't, don't walk in condemnation. Don't walk in, in kind of under the weight of guilt. Know the liberating joy of Christ. Even confession. We confess our sins to one another. It is a humbling experience to to see your sin out there as you speak it out and you see the reality of what you've done. But even in your confession, we're meant to gospel each other. We're meant to (laughs) remind each other of the grace of God. Sometimes some of us really need to hear that as we battle with sin particularly. Even confession, we do it to remind, we, we actually experience the grace of God in that. Grace is not a side detail to your life. It's the grounds, it's the beginning of your relationship with Christ, and it's the ongoing source of joy. Second of all, we'll obviously spend less time on each one now. Reverent fear. Remember the reality of judgment. Just as the people of Israel have been lavished on the mercy of God, they also see the reality of judgment. Think about that moment as they would have been in the land of Israel. They heard the, the cries of terror as these people lost their firstborn sons. They would have re- they've seen the reality of what it is to stand under the judgment of the living God, to face, to face his judgment is a terrible thing. And that Christian, their eyes have been opened to the reality of judgment. They're not blind. They're not ignoring that reality. Christians have seen that and know that that is real. It means we're chastened by the reality of judgment. We cannot scorn God. Think about how Pharaoh just ignored God and rejected him and said, who is God that I should obey him? He says, no, God will have the last laugh. If you think you can ignore him and scorn him and reject him, God will one day bring a reckoning. It's a sobering reality, surely. Even on the cross, as Christ suffers judgment from, uh, for, on our behalf, we are confronted by the reality of judgment. It means we walk in reverent fear. It means we've seen that this is not a God who can be trifled with. Not a God who's like those idols that sometimes you see different people worship where they just kind of give a little offering of fruit to and that when they want something. No, this is not that God. This is the mighty living God. And they've seen his mighty arm revealed to them. They've witnessed his mighty outstretched arm. 
He cannot be ignored or just called upon him when you need him to. The only right response to his majesty and his might is reverence, obedience, and worship. It means we have a fear of God. That's why verse 27, how do the, how do the people respond to this? It says, they, then the people bowed down and worshipped him. The only right response when you see his might and his power is to say, I cannot, how can I oppose the living God who comes in judgment and majesty? It means we live for the return of Christ. It means we live with one eye on the reality of judgment of Christ's return. It means we live almost above everything for that day when Christ comes back. It means there's an urgency to talk to others, to draw others towards Christ. It also means living for Christ's purposes, living for the day when Christ returns, that he might say when, when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant. So it's, it's, like, it's almost like a sobering a reassessment of everything that's important. What, what is important in your life? What are the great accomplishments you're aspiring towards? The number one accomplishment I think you should aspire towards is that Christ will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been about my purposes. That doesn't mean you need to become a pastor. doesn't mean you need to become a missionary necessarily. No bad thing. But it means that you are living for the audience of one. That the fundamental posture behind every part of your life is Christ's approval and not the approval of man. It means that you are living to glorify him in everything you do. It means you're living to obey him, to, to be about his purposes, that you're not living on your own agenda now. You've got a new agenda. You're like the servants who the master has left in charge and they're looking out for his return and they're saying, I'm going to be faithful now because the master's coming back. That is our fundamental posture as Christians. Redeemed people are aware of the existence of judgment. They are grateful that they have been spared judgment and they walk in reverent fear, knowing that Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead one day. Reverent fear. Thirdly, joyful obedience. Remember that sin has no place in your life now. Joyful obedience. Remember that sin has no place in your life now. Those who've been redeemed know that sin no longer belongs in our life anymore. And what's more, they're delighted about it. What I want you to see in this story is there is a great break with the past. There is a great discontinuity in this story between the moment when the people of Israel were slaves under Pharaoh, living their old life, so to speak, and their new lives under the living God, where they've exchanged the slavery to Pharaoh and now have a new master. And of course, this is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. You now live with a new master under his authority, no longer under, what does, how does the New Testament put it? No longer under slavery to sin, no longer under the old life, which led to death. Now you have a new master. And with that new master comes a whole different orientation and, the, and it means an aversion to sin. Now, this is really fascinating, but even in, this, even in the smallest details in this story, we see the sense of a break with the past and a, and, a, and a kind of grabbing hold of a new future. It speaks about removing the leaven from them. And, and, and you might think, what has that got to do with sin? But the New Testament picks this up, picks this theme up, and uses leaven as a theme for sin. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, essentially reinterprets this story through the lens of Christ. And in it, he says, that leaven is like sin. He's saying, get rid of the leaven and instead be, live as the unleavened bread that you are. This is what he says. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. He's saying, you're now unleavened bread. 
Now get rid of that yeast. Remember how they did it in, the, in, this, in this story. They've been told that one, once a year, for a week, they're to get rid of all the unleavened, all the yeast out of their life. My uh, family, I'm from a Jewish background. My aunt's quite a religious uh, Jewish lady. She, um, once a year for Passover, she gets rid of all the yeast in her, in her household. She gets rid of any, anything that has yeast in it. And it's, it's not a kind of passive activity. It's an active activity of, of removing this. And, and so Paul is saying in the same way, actively seek to remove the yeast of sin in your life. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Remove the leaven of sin. This story, and one commentator put it as, that instruction to remove leaven is, is equivalent of God saying, don't let any vestiges of your old Egyptian life go with you into the new life. It's saying, as Christians now, we view sin as an intruder, as one which doesn't belong here. You have a new identity. You are the redeemed people of God. We always fight sin from a place of identity, from saying, I am a new creation. I am the redeemed people of God. This sin does not belong here. There is an urgency to this picture. There's no, it's not passive. It's active. Root out the sin from your life, not in a kind of dare I say, a kind of like very introverted, kind of almost like very negative view. I mean, yes, it is true. Sin is negative. But, but, but from a place of saying, this is not who I am now. This is not who I am. I'm part of the redeemed people of God. This leaven doesn't belong here. The problem is that sin is, is much more resistant than we'd like. It's like a limpet that sticks to the rock. And so easily it kind of hangs on in our lives. I think about the way that so often we, we almost become unaware of the sin in our lives because we're so used to it. You know, like the way you go into some people's houses and there's a bad smell, but they live there and they spent so much time there that they don't notice the smell anymore. Uh, you know, like someone's got a dog or something like that, like they don't notice that smell because it's very familiar to them. In the same way, sometimes we get so used to the patterns of sin in our lives, like, uh, you know, maybe you're just kind of naturally quite gossipy or maybe you're just, you're just often quite judgmental towards other people or, or slanderous or whatever. And actually, just because you do it all the time or because the people around you do it all the time, you don't even notice it anymore. That's why we live in community together. That's why we, we open up our lives. We show warts and all to each other because we, sometimes we need other people to see. Say, look, can't you see there's a bit of yeast there? Don't you believe, shouldn't that be out of there now? It means an end to self-justification, how easily we naturally seek to justify ourselves, seek to defend the presence of sin all the time. And no, we start with the assumption that there's going to be all sorts of yeast in our lives, all sorts of leaven that needs to be rooted out. Every day is a process of dying to self and recognizing that and, and saying, this doesn't belong here anymore. There's a radical non-tolerance of sin. That anger, that selfishness, that pride, that lust, it no longer belongs here. That's not who you are now. Let's get it out. Your new people are redeemed of God. This is, by the way, a joyful experience. It may sound, it is heavy, it's hard, but there's a joy here because you recognize the bitterness of sin. This, you know, it's a very small detail, but in verse eight of this story, uh, he says to eat the roast lamb with bitter herbs. And one commentator, and it's actually the modern Jewish understanding as well, understands those bitter herbs to represent the bitterness of life under Pharaoh. It's like they're meant to eat this meal, and as they eat it, they're meant to... You know, when you say something really bitter, you have a visceral reaction to it. As Christians, we have tasted the bitterness of sin. We know that sin, at best, brings counterfeit joy. It brings momentary satisfaction, sensual indulgence. There is a satiation of a desire somewhere in you, but it lasts just but a moment. 
and then there's the condemnation, and then there's the guilt, and then there's the isolation that follows, and then there's you know, the sense of regret. And you think, actually, I know this tastes bitter. I know that this is a counterfeit joy. Because A, because I've found the joy, I've found the love that is better than life, that this, this momentary indulgence is nothing compared to that joy and that love that I found in Christ. I found something better. I don't need to settle for counterfeit joys anymore. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about the, 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 the sinner, the person who's dwelling in sin is like the child who's making mud pies, sitting in a muddy puddle, making mud pies when he could be making sand castles at the beach. You've got to remember all the time, the great battle against sin is about remembering who you are and remembering the bitterness of sin. Say, no, it tastes rubbish. I don't need to go there. I feel that all the time in my, you know, when I feel temptation, I sometimes have to just remind myself, actually, no, that's just bitter. That won't, that won't lead to flourishing. It's all, all the time. But you're in living in a world, by the way, of people who don't realize that. All the time they're marketing sin to you because we all defend our life choices. We all try to evangelize to others about the choices we make. It's like everybody else is digging into these peaches that look really attractive, but actually they're rotten. And you just need to remember that, 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 that actually you've seen the bitterness of sin, the bitterness of that fruit that doesn't bring life to you. So redeem people, remember the bitterness of sin. They know that it doesn't belong in their lives anymore. And they celebrate that redemption with joy-filled obedience. Number four, freedom. Remember that you're no longer slaves. Those who are redeemed know they're no longer slaves, so they don't, excuse me, they don't re-enter into slavery. Instead, they celebrate and enjoy their freedom. The great story of the Passover is a desire that God would remember, that these, sorry, God's desire that we would remember that we're no longer slaves that we have found true and lasting freedom. We live in a world that puts a huge emphasis on freedom, but it's a counterfeit freedom. It's a a rhetoric of freedom, but actually people are controlled by all sorts of unhealthy desires, by hidden addictions, by the worship of idols that appears attractive, but actually controls them and ultimately doesn't bring flourishing. The most obvious one of these, one of the most obvious forms of idolatry in our culture, because by the way, human nature, we all are made for worship. We will all worship something, and if it's not God, it will be something else. One of the big things that when it is worshipped in our culture is success, is performance. So often we see people living for success, living for the approval of others, or living for uh, their name to be made great. But the problem is, that idol never satisfies. You have to work harder and harder to achieve success after success. It controls you, and it brings great lack of flourishing. Actually, this is, this is, this is um, referenced, I think, even in Deuteronomy. You see, God says to the people of, um, people of God, to the people of Israel, he says, because you are no longer slaves, you can have the Sabbath. You can have rest. You don't have to work every day anymore. You can enjoy your freedom. In Deuteronomy 5, he says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He's saying, because you're not slaves, you don't have to work every day. In fact, you display the fact that you're not slaves by obeying me and living in the right flourishing rhythms of life, including in observing the Sabbath saying, as you, as you live not consumed by your work, you are displaying the freedom that I've given you. And I think that's true as you as a Christian, that you display your freedom by not living and working in the same patterns 
of life that everybody else does in this city. They're consumed by the search for uh, significance through their achievements, but instead, joyfully using your gifts to glorify God. This is best encapsulated by two men, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. Both were runners in, I think it's the 1924 Olympics. Their, Their lives are captured in a film called Chariots of Fire. And they're both very accomplished runners, but they're running for very different reasons. Harold Abrahams is running, a Jewish guy, and he, um, his running is, is really his way of trying to establish his significance in the world. He says just before one race, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? In his pursuit of significance always hangs the uncertainty. Will I succeed? Will I establish my significance? Or if I achieve it in this race, then there's the next one. Never satisfied in his pursuit of significance through his achievements. Contrast him with Eric Little, who's running not for himself, but for the glory of God. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Can I suggest that you may work exactly the same number of hours as the people around you? You may work with the same attitude toward... Sorry, you may work on the surface in the same way, but actually with a radically different attitude. You are no longer living to establish yourself or to meet some, worship some sort of idol of performance and success. Instead, you are worshipping to glorify the living God with your life. And you are living with a different posture. You are acting and working out of a different place. And what I'm trying to say is, as you do that, as you enjoy God, as you work in a contented way, not with the same restlessness, but displaying something of the shalom of Christ that you have received, walking in the peace that he provides, you will be the envy of your colleagues and friends. Isn't this the freedom that people are longing for? You know, see all sorts of self-help books, which really are about trying to find freedom. You know, one of the top bestsellers was The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, the sense of not wanting to care about the opinion of others. We have found that great liberty and freedom as we live for the approval of one and not for the approval of other people around us. What a liberty. What a joy. We found that freedom that the world is longing for. We found the freedom of no longer working for the approval of others or to meet some sort of standard because Christ has met the standard and justified us. He is the reason for our significance, not any other work or accomplishments that we achieve. We have found the freedom that the world is longing for. Let's live in that freedom. Let's not return to slavery. Don't be like the people of Israel who, who once they're in freedom, then look back and say, oh, Pharaoh and his meat pots and start longing for slavery again. You're free. Live as free people. Glorify God with your freedom. Finally, gratitude. Remember that the Lord has brought you to the promised land. Those who remember their redemption are defined by gratitude. They remember that they have been delivered by God's power. See, this whole story is about the people of God living from a posture of gratitude. You know, he says, basically, he's bringing them to the promised land. He says, remember this in this moment when you enter the promised land. Observe this ceremony, verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. That's exactly what happens in Joshua chapter 5. He's saying, the last thing I want is you to get to the land of milk and honey, to get to experience this great liberation and then to forget that it was me who brought you here. He's saying, I want you to remember that I liberated you. The very last thing, it's almost like the whole point of this is that you remember that I am your great liberator. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. Gratitude is the very posture of the Christian life, the great defining posture. And ingratitude 
A lack of gratitude is so opposite to the posture of the Christian. And yet it's so often our default setting, isn't it? You know, why do we ingratitude? Well, I think the obvious one is that we just start to enjoy the land of milk and honey. We just start to enjoy the gifts, but forget the giver. We settle down into comfortability and say, oh, that's great. I've got this and got this and got this. Got all sorts of blessings in your life. But you forget that every blessing, every good gift in your life comes from your heavenly father. Not just salvation. Everything. The food you're on your plate, the bed that you sleep in, the, the friendships, the relationships, the the love that you experience in all sorts of ways of friends and family in all sorts of ways. Everything you have is from your Father in heaven who loves you and provides for you, who knows what you need. So everything is an opportunity for thanksgiving. It's why we have a culture of thanksgiving at Grace in our, you know, our worship songs are full of thanksgiving. When we take communion, we're giving thanks for the salvation we've received. Thanksgiving is the, is the kind of rhythm of our community life because we have received abundantly. We're not living with a, the other great enemy of gratitude, I think, is a sense of entitlement, a sense of, I kind of deserve this. And the way that you'll see that in your life, by the way, is if you start to get bitter with God because he hasn't provided something, because I don't have this. You didn't provide me the spouse that I wanted. You didn't provide me this job that I thought I deserved. I'm not, by the way, there's a difference between bitterness and lament and grieving. I'm not saying you don't grieve things. That's right that we grieve things that we don't have in our lives. We grieve a loss of things we once had. But bitterness, entitlement, self-pity, these attitudes, this sense of, why have you done this, God, and shaking your fist at him because he hasn't done something to you, reveals either a sense of entitlement or a lack of a conviction in the generosity of your good father who knows what you need and will provide it for you. So I can trust him that maybe I don't have everything that I want, but I trust him because he's good and he will provide what I need in the right time. I trust him in that. I'm sure there are areas of your life where you say, I don't, haven't seen this and I'm missing this. But you say, you're good, God. I'm going to trust you. That is surely what it means to trust the generosity of your father. Another area of ingratitude is just that the cross no longer grips us. The sense of our salvation doesn't feel like it did when we first came to faith. When we experienced his grace and we said, I can't believe you've got me as your son. You've called me to yourself. And now it just says, yeah, of course I'm going to follow Jesus. That's, no, he's, his, the cross is incredible. It's bewildering. It should grip us. We should still be saying, I don't deserve this. So see the perversity of ingratitude. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything you have, mercy of God, providence, God's blessing, everything you have is a gift. Even the breath in your lungs that you might use to complain and rail your fist against God, even that is from his hand. So cultivate thanksgiving, whether it be in worship, whether it be in daily giving thanks to God, whether it be in communion, we cultivate thanksgiving in our heart. And that is, by the way, a great antidote to bitterness and disappointment in your life, to cultivate that thanksgiving. So put this all together, and what you see is redeemed people look different. They are captured by the grace of God. They are celebrating the mercy of God. They are dancing with joyful abandon, with a sense of freedom. They are enjoying the freedom that God has given them. They are celebrating that mercy, and they are giving thanks, and they are, they are surrendering their lives out of gratitude to him. They are living with a reality that they're not slaves, that they're under a new master. See how redemption changes us? See how the redemption story of Christ should tower over our lives and work its way into everything we do, whether it be 
the posture of mercy towards those who offend us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Whether it be the posture of gratitude even in suffering. Whether it be the contentment that comes from knowing his love even when you're going through difficult circumstances. Actually, redemption should make us look radically different to the people around us. We are redeemed people of God. We are redemption people. <laughs> that we, that's why we sing on Sundays anthems of redemption. Should we do that now? Should we, should we celebrate our redemption? Should we come and taste that? Uh, let's, as, as the first song goes on, we'll take communion and we'll, we'll, we'll literally have an opportunity to taste his redemption, to, to as, as it were, to, to experience the objective reality of Christ's death for us. That even if we don't feel it, we eat it and we go, mm, yep, he's, he's died for my sins. And as we drink that wine, we, we literally drink in the grace of God, but we also point to the one day, that great festal gathering, that feast, that wine. You know, wine is reminiscent of feasting. We look forward to the day that we will be feasting and celebrating the grace of God at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And until then, we live lives that point to that great reality. That is our mission, our purpose, our raison d'etre as the people of God. Why don't the guys stand up? If you're sharing communion, would you, would you please come and um, share it with us? Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we want to thank you for your grace and mercy. We want to thank you that we absolutely don't deserve it, and yet you've reconciled us to yourself. Yet you have poured out mercy. There is this great fountain of mercy that never runs dry, and we just want to thank you for that, Lord. We want to thank you that we can come and drink in your mercy now. We want to thank you that our whole lives can be an act of worship and gratitude for that mercy. I pray that that mercy would just go deep into our souls that the redemption of Christ would be the foundational event of our lives, should be the great basis for our identity, that it would be the defining moment of our lives, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, that it would bleed into our identity and our emotions and our actions, and that we would display the redemption of Christ in our lives. We're so grateful for your grace, Lord. We want to come and just drink from your more living water now. Amen.